Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has, has, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seems good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. 
men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I'm going to pray for us before we turn to 923 in those Bibles. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given it to your church and you have said that your word is alive and active. That doesn't make sense to us. The words that we write on the page are not alive and active. The words that we speak um, don't have the ability to change anyone's hearts. But Father, you have said that your word is alive and active because you, Holy Spirit, enliven it. You take it and plant it deep into our hearts. Father, for those of us who know that to be the very thing that we need, we ask that you would do it now. Father, for those who are with us who don't know that that's what they need, would you do it for them because you're merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? Father, we come before you as human beings who are weak. We see our weakness and our inability to pay attention to some verses. We see our weakness and our inability uh, to distance ourselves from the rest of life, uh, even just for a minute to pay attention. Father, our minds are captured, both by good things and by difficult things. Father, we are thankful for the raffles. Thankful for Ashley's health and for Andrew's health as this baby has arrived. Father, we praise you that you have met these guys. Father, there are many struggles that we're dealing with, from health to loss of jobs to huge questions in our lives. Father, some of us are wondering, is this where we ought to come to church? Some of us are wondering, does God even work in human hearts anymore? Father, I ask that in these next few minutes you would bring glory to your name and you would remind us that you are faithful beyond measure and that you, Father, as you have promised, will meet us and you will feed us. So we're dependent. We come to you as dependent human beings. We come not of our own accord, but in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. 
We're looking at Acts this winter and spring. It's our second winter and spring in it. That's why we're in Acts 15 already, even though Christmas has just passed. And if I had to title this at all, I would say that this is the church in expansion. Um, It's Acts chapter 15. And one minister that I listened to this week said that this might be one of the most important chapters in the Bible for the church. My folks are up, and we were recalling something that Ben said when he was a little boy. He had visited a family friend of ours near the seminary, and it had been a big day for Ben. He had gotten to play with a dog, and he was at seminary where he didn't have dogs, and he loved dogs. He had gotten to go out to McDonald's with John, and then he had swam with John and Lori, and he was thrilled. And at the end of that day, he sat back and told John and Lori, he said, John and Lori, I want you to know this has been a big day in the life of Benjamin Barnes. And that's what he told them. I would like for you to think, when you read this chapter of Scripture, this is a big chapter in the life of the church. And I want to show you three reasons why it's a big chapter. I want you to see the magnitude of what is at stake in Acts 15. The magnitude of what is at stake in Acts 15 is none other than the gospel itself, the relationships of Christians, and even the church. That's what's at stake in in this passage that you had a hard time listening to because it was a little bit longer than you're used to reading. And I get that. That's okay. But look at it with me again because there's a lot at stake. And it's super important to us, to us today. Not only is it written in the Word of God, But it has to do with who we are together, right? This is an important passage. It's in the context of the expansion of God's kingdom. And before we come to this table, we're going to pray, God, would your kingdom come and would your will be done? And so we are expecting that expansion of God's kingdom to continue. And maybe we're going to see some of that expansion even in Newton and Wellesley. That's our desire. And so I want you to see the magnitude of the importance of this passage. I grew up in the South. I would love to disguise it sometimes, but you guys know from my accent, I can't disguise it at all. In the South, we go to restaurants and we call them meat and threes because you go and you get one hunk of meat and then you get to pick three sides. Well, I want you to know this is how this thing is organized this week. The meat and twos, not the meat and threes. And I know you're glad to hear that. But the meat and twos, there's a meat to this, and we're going to cover the meat first. And then there are two sides that are really important that you listen to. So there are the meat and twos that we're about to get into. So why is this so important to us? The first thing that I want you to see, and the reason why we need to hear this, is because it is absolutely necessary That the church, that we maintain what the gospel is. Salvation by grace through faith. That is the meat of this passage. If you're going to chew on something for a little bit, chew on this. And I promise the twos will be a little bit less than the meat. All right, But chew on this with me. I want you to notice the context. Paul and Barnabas, who have preached that salvation is by grace through faith have seen a massive response among non-Jewish people, Gentiles. We have seen this in chapters 13 and 14, the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, right? Antioch being the chief city where these non-Jews have come together with Jews and have come and put their faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ 
who died for them, not because of anything that they had done, but because God graciously sent his son and they put their faith in him. Thus they were saved. Paul and Barnabas have proclaimed this and into that context, they have returned to Antioch from this missionary journey and suddenly there are folks that have come down from Judea. Now, the interesting thing is they did come down elevation-wise, but they went up, if you think about it, the way we talk about it because Antioch is north of Jerusalem. But they came down from Judea, and these guys preached, verse 1, that unless you are circumcised, the covenant sign of the Jewish people, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you see where the tension of the passage comes from. It is also commented again in verse 5 as Paul and Barnabas are before the elders and the apostles and they say there, it is necessary to circumcise these Gentiles, them is what they say, and to order them to keep the, God, the law of Moses. It's necessary. They have to do this to be saved. And that's the tension it is absolutely necessary. Now listen, you've been listening to the impeachment processes as much as I have. You've got folks on the two extremes, both of whom say it's absolutely necessary for democracy to be maintained that one thing or another happens in this situation, right? I would argue that the hyperbole is not helpful because you come to this and you go, well, is it really necessary? And I want you to see here, it is really necessary. It is absolutely necessary. It's different than what you think. It is absolutely necessary. So think about it with me. We read in verses 2 and in verses 7 that this tension, is it necessary to be circumcised, to take on the markings of an ethnic Jew, or excuse me, of a religious Jew, and to put yourself under the law of Moses, is it necessary for the Gentiles to do that to be saved? And we see that Paul and Barnabas argue with these guys in verse 2. We see that as these guys represent themselves before the apostles and the elders in verse 7, that there is no small debate. This is a hot topic. This is really important. There's no small dissension. There's real disagreement. On this matter, this is a big deal. And into this big deal, Peter speaks. Peter starts speaking in verse 7. You see that, right? It says, and after, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers. Now Peter goes on to explain to them what happened to him as a Jew in chapters 11 of Acts when he went to Cornelius and shared the gospel with him. Peter would never have done that as a Jew except he saw a vision and then he heard God tell him, follow these guys that I'm sending to you and make no distinction of whether they're Jews or Gentiles. Go with them, he says. And so Peter, in his speech, references that it was God who directed him to follow them it was God who bore witness to their faith by giving them the Holy Spirit. Do you see that in his speech? 
And then again, it was God himself who made no distinction. Peter is saying, look, what has happened among the Gentiles isn't because of Paul and Barnabas. It is God who is doing it. And then he says a very interesting thing that makes you stop. He says in verse 10, if it's God who was doing this from the beginning, why are you putting God to the test? You kind of scratch your head and go, what was he talking about? Putting God to the test. It seems like he's going to put these Gentile converts to the test and say, are you really serious about your faith? Well, then come underneath the law. But that's not what he says. He says, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Now, this idea of putting God to the test for a Jew would have taken them straight to the Old Testament and even straight to probably Exodus 17 when the Israelites wandering in the desert said, God has brought us out here to kill us. He doesn't have the power to save us, nor is he demonstrating that power on our behalf. And God says to them in Exodus 17, why are you testing me? And he even names the experience that's too much for us to get into today. This is where the Israelites tested me. They doubted God's ability to care for him and his power to do so. And what Peter is saying is he's saying, look, if you are telling these Jews, these non-Jews, these Gentiles that they have to keep the law so that they're saved, you're saying that God doesn't have the power to save them. You're doubting the very thing that God has begun. Thus, you are actually testing God. And then he says of the law of Moses, which the Old Testament says over and over, look, the law of Moses was a gift to the people of Israel. It wasn't this heavy burden. It was a gift to them, given to them by God on Mount Sinai. Peter says, look, if you're telling them that their salvation comes from keeping the law, you're putting a yoke on them that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And then Peter makes it very clear in what he says in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they, the Gentiles, will. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. It says in verse 12 that silence fell on all those who were gathered and that Paul and Barnabas reported to them and they said, we want you to know what we saw. When these people professed faith, God did many signs and wonders. Go back and look at verses, or chapter 14, verse 3, where it says that the Lord himself bore witness to the words of grace by doing many signs and wonders among them. Peter is saying, look, as this gospel expands, we need to be clear about what the gospel is. Salvation by grace through faith, it is not salvation by works of the law. It is not both and, either or. It has to be one or the other. You guys, this is bigger than whether you're a Red Sox fan or a Yankees fan. That's a big deal, right? You can't be both. We explained to Ben when he was a little boy, you can't be both. You're both in school, you're going to get beaten up. One or the other, pick one. 
And pick the right one, please, because there is only one right one when you live in Boston. This is bigger than that, you guys. I tried to, to, to create a scenario of salvation needed, and, and this is what I came up with, as corny as it may be. And I was, I didn't, you know, Jim is the only one that knows that there is one exception to this illustration, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Imagine this, that you're in a plane, and the plane has lost all control, and, and you have to figure out to be saved, I either have to land this plane, or I have to put on this parachute and jump out of the plane. You see, you can't do both. You can't control the plane, put the parachute on, and then when you realize you can't control the plane, pull the parachute. It doesn't work. The reason I say there's an exception is because Jim showed me a plane that actually has a parachute of its own, but don't let that exception to the rule blow my illustration, all right? You can't have both. It's one or the other. You can't both land the broken plane and save yourself and have the parachute. It's one or the other. The book of Galatians helps us understand this because the Apostle Paul says that, look, if you're going to be circumcised, if you're going to take on that sign of the old covenant, he says you are now obligated to keep the entirety of the law. And when you do that, circumcised, the removal of foreskin is the sign for a male. He says this, you are actually severed. Very graphic language. You're actually severed from Christ. You are no longer, the Apostle Paul says, in grace, but you have fallen away from grace. That's how big of a deal this is. James then pipes up. In verse 12, we see that Barnabas and Paul bear testimony to what has happened with the Gentiles. And then we see in verse 13 that James speaks. And James says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, who's Peter. Now, Peter has also been called Simon, you know, but if you look up one of, the, one of the greetings of one of the books of Peter, he actually also calls himself Simeon. So it's Peter. Don't be too distracted from that. He says that Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written... After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of the of I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it You can look up the notes as easily as I can James is 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 um, quoting Amos chapter 9 an Old Testament prophet of what God was going to do to bring salvation to the Gentiles his actions not theirs right what is, in, what is, what is uh, emphasized in that? And you can look it up. It's, it's word for word from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And James says, listen, Peter's statement is confirmed by Scripture. God said well beforehand that this is exactly what he's going to do. And in the language of church leadership that I'm familiar with, James makes a motion and he says, therefore, this is my judgment, verses 19 and following, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We shouldn't trouble them. It is false 
that it is necessary to be circumcised. It is necessary to keep the law of Moses and believe in Jesus to be saved. You cannot land the broken plane and pull the parachute from the cockpit. You can't do it. It's not necessary. We're not going to trouble them anymore. But then he goes on to give this stipulation. We're going to look at that next. I want you to see that this chapter is given to the church. And as one minister put it, is because our struggle as human beings to add to the gospel never ends. Listen to how he says it. He says it's part of our own inability, our own inability to accept a gift. And deeper than that, we want to be loved because of what we do for God. That's inherent. It's deep in us. We don't want grace. We want to earn it. And that's why this chapter is so important. Because to maintain the gospel is of absolute necessity as the church expands. And listen, we are a church plant, and we hope to plant churches. We want more women and men in Newton and Wellesley to come to Christ, and they've got to come to the gospel. They can't come to something you and I believe about the culture. It has to be to Jesus. It has to be. Because you are saved by grace through faith and nothing else. I thought to myself, what do we, what do I do to you guys that may make you feel troubled? We see here this loss of joy. We see twice when the gospel is proclaimed and there's tons of joy, right? And it's, it's proclaimed at the end and they're filled with joy. What are things that I do to you guys that might make you think, well, Bradley thinks that, yeah, sure, saved by grace, but if you don't do this, you're not really serious. And I thought to myself, you know, I wonder as much as I talk about prayer, if people really feel that way. Like if, if they don't come to prayer, do, 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 do I make them feel as if they're second class citizens? Listen, the scripture says that you ought to pray without ceasing. Jesus gives this great parable about the widow before an unjust judge. And the beginning of it says that you might always pray and never give up. And I'm convinced that those of you who struggle with anxiety, the foundational thing that you could do, yes, there are other medical reasons, but the foundational thing that you could do is pray. But I want you to know, no amount of prayer is connected to your salvation. Please don't hear that from me. Do you think that we would say, look, unless you're intense enough, you can't be saved? That is not true. There is only one way to be saved, and it is by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ received by faith. Salvation by grace through faith. That is the meat the two sides will be quick. Have mercy. I want you to see that our freedom from the law, as a means of salvation, our freedom from the law does not mean lawlessness or carelessness. Where do I get that? I want you to see what he says. James, chapter, verse 20, chapter 15, he says this. But that we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. 
And then the reason he gives is verse 21, for from every generation, from, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. James says, look, we don't need to trouble them about their salvation, but let's tell them to do these things. Abstain from things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Now, for you and me, you're like, man, what a crazy list. I mean, where in the world does that list come from? Uh, how many times have you struggled with things that have been strangled and, and, and with, with blood in your house? I mean, you have blood in your house. But here, what James is doing is highlighting Leviticus 17 and 18, these chapters of the law that had been embellished upon and exalted among the Jews, that these were of the things that Gentiles participated in that they couldn't imagine ever having fellowship with them. That's what we have in these four things. And what James is saying is he's saying it would be well. You would do well. You would do good works, not unto salvation, but you would do well to abstain from these things. Why does he say that? Verse 21, he says that there are in every city from ancient times those who proclaim Moses, is what he says in verse 21. Interesting. He says this, you would do well to abstain from those things so that you who proclaim faith in God can be a witness both to those in the church who have the hardest time believing that you are also in the church as a Gentile and those Jews who are outside of the church who say, I can't imagine ever being related to a Gentile. Look at the stuff they do. But our freedom from the law doesn't mean that we can be lawless. Part of these makes sense to you. They're dietary laws, right? And you read them and you're like, well, I know enough about the Bible that Jesus talked about dietary laws. It's not what goes into somebody that makes them unclean, but what comes out. Well, I understand that in Acts 10 and 11, Peter had this vision and the dietary laws. But, but here, sexual immorality, what do you mean? That's, that's, a, that's a law. Jesus made sexual immorality. You know, he applied that to the heart when he said, you've heard it say not to commit adultery, but I say if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've already committed adultery. Why is sexual immorality here? Well, more than likely it's there because in that embellishment of Leviticus 17 and 18, there were prohibitions against the distance you had to get familiarly to marry somebody. And Gentiles thought, that's ridiculous. I'm going to marry who I want to marry. And he was saying, no, for the sake of those who proclaim the law of Moses, don't do that for them. Don't do that. This idea of sexual immorality here is not saying that the Bible doesn't have to say something about our sexual morality, what it means to be a woman and a man created in the image of God and how we Act on that sexuality. The Bible has everything to say about it. And if you say, I'm going to believe in Jesus as long as this view of mine is not cha challenged sexually, then I want to say that's become an idol for you. The Bible has something to say about sexuality. 
Our freedom from the law as a means of salvation doesn't mean that we're lawless. And it also doesn't mean that we're careless. Because James is saying, look, it's not optional that your sexuality is going to change if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. The way you practice your sexuality will change, Gentiles, is what he's saying. You will come in line with the scripture. I had a buddy whose friend came to faith in college, and it was some weeks later that he came back to him, and he goes, wait a minute, you didn't tell me I was supposed to stop having sex. I became a Christian like three weeks ago, and I've still been having sex for the last three weeks. And the guy goes, look, you are going to figure it out. You are going to see that this is what God requires of you. This is, you know, to be sexually faithful is to practice sex within the marriage. You are going to figure that out. It will come in line. It takes time. But here, it is also to take care, not to be careless of those within the faith, of the Jews that were in the church and the Jews who were outside the church, that the Gentiles would follow these regulations. It was not a necessity unto salvation, but it was a way to demonstrate that their freedom from the law didn't mean that they were lawless and careless. You think, is it really possible that folks don't know? That, that there are people that don't know that this is what the Bible would say? You guys, I sat with one of my very good friends, highly educated man, and he asked me yesterday, do Methodists and Presbyterians believe in the same God? You guys, the people that we love and long to communicate Christ to do not know the God of Scripture. In the way that we love them and model our faith matters. It matters. I grew up in a context where it mattered whether you drank or not. And arrogant people like myself said, phooey, I'm going to show the next generation I'm free from that. It's not an issue of whether or not I drink. I can drink if I want to. I can even point to scripture that says beer is a gift from God. <laughs> but you see, to live that way, carelessly and, and without regard for those who are around you, is how the Apostle Paul talks about the dietary regulations in another place that the Corinthians, and he says, look, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Do you care about the people you're with? You know, I think that if we put our heads together, we'd come up with some other examples. I'm, I'm going to end with this, by the way. I'm not going to do the next one. We'll, we'll do, we can pause. We're, we're together for a long time unless I die this week. You know, another one, that we really ought to think about is how do we talk about politics when we're together? I'm serious. I'm serious. For us, it's not make or break, right? We understand. We're not saved by that. You guys, our friends don't know that. Our friends literally think that it's one way or another and we think it's one way or the other. We ought to be political. You ought to vote. You ought to have a conscience. You ought to be engaged. We ought to be that way. But should we be careful about how we talk about it? Absolutely, we should. Absolutely, we should. Here's the title of the last one, your last side. You can't taste it with me. You're going to have to take it home in a goodie bag and go eat it while you're at home. 
It's simply this. Man, I wanted to get to this one too. It's in a question form. I'm going to leave it with you. Does the church have authority in your life? Does the church have authority in your life? I might have to come back to it next week because it's a really big deal. You notice that the folks in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to go and ask the church, what should we believe? And the question just gathers, does the church have authority in your life? Listen, the meat of this is that there is one way to be saved. It is not the combination of two. You do not pull a parachute while you're flying a plane. You jump out of the plane before you pull the parachute. This passage is about the absolute necessity of maintaining salvation by grace through faith. Absolutely. And listen, we are parachuting into the places where God has put us so that our friends who do not know him and will perish if they do not come to know him, might know him. So that the way we live, apart from the law, isn't with lawlessness and carelessness, but is with the affection of Christ in their lives. Pray with me. We'll eat at the table.